question for you. How many of you are Google doctors? Okay, you know, you know what I mean by that is you, you or someone in your family isn't feeling well, has a physical problem, and so you go to, you know, Google or WebMD and look up, you know, the symptoms. Now, now how, many of you, okay, how many of you do that? Okay, how many of you do that? All right. A lot of you, you do that. All right. So you diagnose the problem and then you start to, you know, give the little prescription or the remedy that you looked up and... But have you ever had this happen where it just doesn't work? So you finally break down, you finally go to the doctor, you tell the doctor everything that you've been doing, and he basically says, everything that you've been doing isn't helping, it's actually making matters worse. Have you had that happen to you before? Well, the church in Corinth had a slew of problems, and everything that they were doing was only making matters worse. The book of 1 Corinthians is what we call a corrective letter. And if you've been with us in our study um, that we've been doing in this book, you you realize that because, you know, it seems like every single week Paul is dealing with another problem. And there have been a lot of problems, you know, in this book that Paul has been dealing with. Paul would almost be like the guy that comes into a company that just is a mess and he's trying to make everything, you know, fix everything or somebody that comes maybe into a, a department. Maybe that's some of you. That's been your job. You go into a department that's just a mess and you've got to make it better. Well, that's what Paul has been doing here with the church in Corinth. And we've noted some of the problems. It started in chapter one. He talked about the problem of division and then he tackled gross sexual immorality that was happening in that church. And then he, you know, had to tackle how believers were suing one another and dragging each other into court. And then we spent several weeks talking about the right and wrong uses of Christian liberty. So Paul has been diagnosing the problems and then giving a prescription of how to make it better. And this time the problem has to do with more division and the selfish behavior that has been happening in their gatherings when they come together. We're going to pick it up in verse 17. Paul writes this. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Now, if you look back into verse 2 of chapter 11, Paul actually commended them when he was talking about the ordinances in general. He said, I praise you, brethren. But here in verse 17, concerning this issue and dealing with their gatherings together, Paul says, I have no praise for you. Since when you come together, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. For the worse. In fact, he's going to say this, I have no praise for you, several times in the section that we're going to cover tonight. But when he says, you know, since when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse, he's basically saying your gatherings, when you guys gather together, it's causing more harm than good. It would almost be like saying this, when somebody gets saved in Corinth, we're not telling them to come to your church, you know, because it could actually do damage to them is, is the idea of what he's talking about here. Now, we're going to see that there were several problems that were happening in their gatherings together as we look at the, the chapters in the coming weeks. But this one has to do with the abuse of the Lord's table. Let's pick it up in verse 18. He says, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, 
I believe it. Now, Paul's basically saying there, unfortunately, nothing surprises me anymore when it comes to you guys, is kind of what he's saying here. Verse 19, for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Now, in chapter one, we saw that they were divided over leaders. Remember that? They're saying some were of Paul and some of Paulos and some of Peter. Well, this time the division that Paul's addressing had to do more with their relationships with each other and their treatment of one another when they came together. We're going to see in just a little bit that there was an issue of really partiality that was happening here and selfishness. And it was being manifested in what they called their love feast. Before we, we get to that, though, let me just say this. It's interesting what Paul says in verse 19 when he says, for there must also be factions among you. Listen, factions, or another word for that is divisions in a church, are always disruptive and always destructive. But if they are not tolerated, if they're dealt with properly, they can also be constructive. They can be revealing. And that's really the paradox that Paul is pointing out here. And in a sense, he's saying it was necessary. These divisions were necessary in in the Corinthian church to basically decipher those who were godly from those who were ungodly. It was almost like the separating of the wheat from the chaff. You see, the worldliness and fleshly disobedience of those who were causing the division would positively expose or stand in contrast, we might say, and and sort of highlight the love and harmony and spirituality of those that Paul refers to as being approved. And that word approved is interesting because it refers to that which has passed the test. In fact, the term was used of precious metals in the fire. And you know, they put metal, like gold, for instance, in the fire. And what happens when it's in the fire? All the dross rises to the surface, and then they scrape it off, and they put it back in the fire. And each time the gold is going into the fire, all the impurities are rising to the surface. Well, that's what was happening in this trial of division that was taking place in the church, it was revealing the genuine faith of some, the genuine love for Jesus that was in, in the, the hearts of some of the people in the church, but it was also revealing those whose heart wasn't in the right place. So in the midst of the bickering and divisiveness, it's sort of like the, the believers in that church are being separated, the gold from the dross, and trouble in a church creates a situation where true spiritual strength, wisdom, and leadership can be manifested. And this is kind of what Paul, the picture that he's painting here. Now, how was this division manifested? We see that beginning here in verse 20. Notice what he says. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat, is it not to, or it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? 
do you not have houses to eat and drink in? I love that line. Like, don't you guys have houses to eat at home? You know, uh, you'll, that'll make more sense here in a minute. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. There he goes again. I do not praise you guys. So here's the deal. When the believers in the Corinthian church came together to share in the Lord's Supper, what we call communion, it wasn't like what we tech, uh, typically do, what we're going to do tonight. We're going to, at the end of our time tonight, we're going to have some more worship and we're going to partake of communion. And, and so, you know, you get a little tiny thing of juice and a little, you know, tiny wafer thing um, that's attached to the cup. And now we have gluten-free, for you gluten-free fans, um, but uh, it, when, when they got together, it was a feast. They would have what they called an agape feast. It was a love feast. That's what that word agape means. It was a love feast. So they would have a whole meal together. And in that culture, community meals were really, really common. People would get together and, you know, they'd have this community meal together. But in that day, at these community meals, or what they might call common meals, this was sort of the norm in that society. It was expected that the upper class, the rich folk, would receive better and more food than the lower class. That was kind of the, the cultural norm in that society. And the problem was, is that cultural norm and cultural custom was carried over into the church there in Corinth. Now, pause there for a minute and just think about this. I think it would make more sense to us that in a common meal, in a community meal, that those who were rich, those who were, you know, maybe the upper class people we might call them, would probably be able, you would think, to bring more, more food to the feast than the person, the lower class person, the, per, the poor person, you know? You, you would think that that would be the norm. But the problem was that they weren't sharing their food fairly. That was the issue. Notice verse 21, he says again, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and the other is drunk. Look at the second part of verse 22. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? This was the problem. The rich people in the church were acting entitled, and they would go through the line first, and they would pile on. You know, their, their mentality is like, hey, I brought most of this. I'm going to eat most of it. You know, and they, they would pile it on. It's like, you know, you've maybe been to that potluck. And all of you single guys here, okay, just want to make note of this. You don't want to do this, okay? When you get invited to the potluck, don't pile on, okay? You know, you don't want to do that, guys. You single guys, you'll be single a long time if you do that, okay? You don't want to do that. The message that was being sent by these guys, by the, the rich people, was this, that the poor was being sent by, the, the message that was being sent by their action to the poor was this, is you are less, therefore you get less. That's what was happening. That's what Paul means there when he says, you shame those who have nothing. They were making the poorer people that were in the church 
feel like they didn't belong, feel like they didn't deserve. And this action and mindset was extremely worldly. And then to top it off, Paul says that some of the believers were actually getting drunk at these gatherings. I mean, they're, they're not only piling on the food, but they're downing, you know, the wine. They're just guzzling. They're getting hammered. I mean, talk about a mess. And again, Paul repeats himself in verse 22. I do not praise you. Like, guys, I'm not happy about this is basically what he's saying. So that was the problem. That was the diagnosis. Now Paul's going to give the prescription. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink, drink it in remembrance of me. So what's the prescription that Paul gives for this chaos that is going on in the church? This partiality, this selfishness, this entitlement. The the prescription that he gives, the answer that he gives is the cross. He takes them to the cross. By bringing them to the whole concept, reminding them when Jesus got his disciples together on the night when, before he was going to go to the cross, he reminds them of the Lord's Supper, what we call communion, how Jesus took you know, the elements. What Jesus was doing there is he was giving a visual sermon, or we might call it a sermon with props. And his props are the bread. And he says, see this bread? This represents my body which is going to be broken for you. And you see this cup? This represents my blood that is going to be shed for you. If you were here Sunday, I, I, I did a little visual you know, sermon with props. I had a little teapot up here to illustrate and poured some water in illustrating you know, what happens when a cup sits a long time that it gets lukewarm. In fact, one of my favorite sermons that I ever did here. Some of you may, might have been here. It was several years ago. But we were talking in Second Kings about when Elijah, or Elisha, I can't remember which one it was now, says to the, the widow, you know, who's out of food and she's going to lose her sons to slavery. He says, go. He, she says, all I have is this little jar of oil. And he says, go to all your neighbors and borrow a whole bunch of pots. Borrow as many as you can. And if you were here that day, you might remember, we filled this whole stage with pots, empty pots. And it was kind of the the picture that this is what this woman did. She filled all of these pots. And with this little jar of oil, God kept filling all the pots up until she gets to the last, you know, uh, pot filling up with the oil. It was kind of like the loaves and the fishes. It's just, they wouldn't run out. It was just you know, this visual sermon. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. It's one of the reasons why I love to take people to Israel because, you know, Israel is a, this, it's like the Bible in technicolor. You know, you get a chance to see the places. You know, when we're on a boat crossing the, the Sea of Galilee and we talk about this is, you know, Jesus walked on the water and you can kind of picture that. Or when we're on Mount Carmel and this is where 
Elijah had his showdown, you know, with the 450 prophets of Baal. It's like, somebody said this, it's like going to Israel is seeing the Bible in 3D. And that's what Jesus is doing on that night, is he's giving a visual sermon. This bread represents my body. I'm going to bear all the weight of the sin of the world upon myself. This cup, it represents my blood that's going to be poured out, and it is going to cleanse people from all of their sin. But this is the point that Paul is wanting to make here, is the cross fixes the problem of division and partiality for us. You know why? Because we all get saved the same way. You realize that? We all get saved the same way. Through the cross. Through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the only way to get saved. You can't be good enough. You can't, you know, give enough. You can't do enough. The only way that you and I can get saved is we have to come through the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I love this quote from a pastor by the name of Gordon Smith. He said, nothing so effectively mitigates against the propensity toward individual autonomy within our culture and within Western Christianity as the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper so enables us to declare and experience our common faith. It brings us together, in other words. We have this common ground that we're all brought together, sinners saved by the grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, as we continue tonight breaking down this passage, this is what I want to do. I want to give you six insights or six lessons that we learn from this passage about communion. So when we are partaking of communion, these are six things that should be running through our minds of what this means and what it is that we're doing and why that we do it. So number one, communion is a time to look back. Look at verse 24. He says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to them, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. What's Jesus saying? Do this in remembrance of me. He says the same thing about the cup. Do this. When you do this, do this in remembrance of me. At the table of communion, we are remembering what Jesus did for us. We are remembering that he took the punishment that we deserved. We are remembering that he took upon himself the wrath of God that was meant for us. We're remembering that the Bible literally tells us that on the cross, Jesus literally became sin for us. Think about that. He became sin. All the sin of the world was thrust upon him. He became sin that you and I might become righteous. So we're remembering that at communion. Pastor Timothy Keller shares this illustration. Um, Any Lord of the Rings fans here? Okay. Um, He shares a great illustration here from the, the book version of the Lord of the Rings when he writes this. He says, in the Lord of the Rings, Pippin the Hobbit is about to die as he is in a city besieged by evil forces. 
And, but then Pippin hears a horn in the distance and he sees the riders of Rohan attempt to break through the siege. Now many die, but eventually they break through and save Pippin. And from that day on, whenever Pippin would hear a horn in the distance, he would break into tears. For when he heard the horn, he relived his time of peril and was moved again to the sacrifice of those who died to save him. It reminded Pippin that every moment of his life was a gift that came at great cost. And Keller gives this insight when he says, the Lord's Supper serves as a horn in the distance for us, reminding us of our great salvation and motivating us to serve the one who gave everything for us. So number one, communion is a time of looking back. Number two, communion is also a time of looking forward. Look at verse 26. Jesus said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now on the night when Jesus was with his disciples in that upper room. We read this in Matthew chapter 26. It says, and then he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Guys, this is the cool reality. I love this. Jesus is coming again for his church. Jesus is coming back. It could happen tonight. It's what we call the rapture of the church when Jesus comes not to the earth but to the clouds and the church is caught up to meet him in the air and he takes us to heaven. And on the night when Jesus was having that communion feast, the Lord's Supper with his disciples, he was looking forward to that day when he, that, that future celebration of the Passover there in heaven one where he would be celebrating this with his people. And he's waiting for all the people to be gathered to him. And then there's going to be this great supper called the, the wedding feast of the Lamb of God that we're going to be in heaven. And this is going to be a part of it. And Jesus is looking forward to that. In fact, perhaps this is what led Charles Spurgeon to declare, I think the moments when we are nearest to heaven are those when we spend at the Lord's table. Because it's, it's like a step closer to what we're going to be experiencing one day in heaven as we partake of this feast with Jesus himself. And so we look forward. It's a reminder to us of what is coming. It's a reminder to us first as we look back of everything that Jesus did on the cross. It's a reminder of his work. But it's also a reminder of, to us of the fact that he didn't just die but he rose he rose again from the dead and he lives and he ascended and he's coming back. And so we look forward to that. Number three, we look within. Look at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner and eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For, th for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. 
Another, another way to say that is many have died. For if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Now, what does he mean here when he says to not partake in an unworthy manner? The idea is this. He uses this phrase, not discerning the Lord's body. Another way to put that is not giving worth to the body of Christ. So the idea is not giving honor to the cross. So how do we do that? What are some ways that we can do that? Well, one way is when we take communion lightly. When it just becomes, you know, it just doesn't. This is a ritual. It doesn't mean anything to me anymore. When we take it lightly, and that definitely was happening in the church in Corinth. I mean, they they were taking it lightly. That's why Paul says there in verse 20, therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Like, you guys have missed the point altogether. You've forgotten the whole reason and focus. You know, that was supposed to be the focal point, and you've made all these other things the focal point. You know, when you walk in our building, you see this sign in our, in our entryway that says, Simply Jesus. And the reason why we have that there is because every single day when we walk by that, and every time people come in there, we, we want to just to be reminded that he is the one that this is all about. That basically, to us, that means, simply Jesus means it's all to Jesus, Everything, our worship, it's all about his glory. It's all about Jesus. When we're studying the word of God, it's not principles that we're looking for. It's a person that we want to connect with. And it's all for Jesus. Everything that we do, all the service, everything that flows out of this church, every church plan, every missionary, every activity, every, you know, just thing that we seek to do, it's all for Jesus serving Jesus. He's the focal point. Jesus and the work on the cross is the focal point of our coming together. He's our focus. He's our example. He's our life. And the church in Corinth, they had forgotten about that. They were more concerned about what they were going to be eating. You know, they were more concerned. They come together about, you know, I want some chicken. I want some ribs, you know, and I want as much as I, that's what they were thinking about. They weren't thinking about the cross. They weren't thinking about Jesus. So they were taking it lightly. It was like an afterthought instead of the focal point. Another way that we can partake in an unworthy manner is to have no intention in our lives of repenting, turning away from sin. You know, it's the idea of coming into a setting like this and you are living Okay, I'm not talking about somebody struggling. I'm talking about you're living in sin. You are living in rebellion and you have no intention of changing that. So it's basically saying this, as you hold those elements in your hand, that you're saying, I know what this represents. This piece of bread, it represents the body of Jesus that was brutally beaten and tortured and nailed to a cross and took all the sin, even the sin I'm in right now, took all the sin of the world upon himself. And I know what this cup represents. It represents his blood that was shed to cleanse me of my sin, but I have no intention whatsoever of turning from my sin. But I'm still going to partake of it. That would be partaking of it in an unworthy manner. Not giving it worth. Because you're just ignoring altogether your sin. 
And, and what Paul says here is, hey, if that's where you're at, it would be better for you to not partake at all. And he says, for that reason, there are some here that are weak and some that are sick. And when he says, and some who have you know, fallen asleep, he means, and some who have even died. Now, I love the, the insight that my friend John Corson gives on this point. I'm going to read to you a rather long quote. It, it should be on the screen. He says this. Because you don't value the Lord's Supper, said Paul, there are people in your midst who are weak, folks who are sick, some who have even died because they haven't understood the potency or the vitality inherent in communion. Too often communion is nothing more than a meaningless tradition or ritual. Thus many remain in a state of spiritual weakness because they don't give worth to or value the place of communion. And because of this, Failure to give it worth. People are dying physically, emotionally, spiritually in ways they need not be. Failing to discern the power of the broken body and the cleansing of the shed blood. I'll tell you this. The reason why I like that quote is I don't know anybody who has ever died. I personally don't for not giving worth to the body of Christ. I don't know, and it's never happened in our church service, I hope it never does, that somebody killed over and died, all right? Um, you know, sometimes the Lord did that type of thing. Acts chapter five, when Ananias and Sapphira, it's the beginning of the early church, and, and God, I think, is wanting to make a statement that, hey, I want my church to be pure, and so these guys are lying and to the Holy Spirit, and they just drop dead, husband and wife, on the spot. And it like shook everybody up. I'm like, okay, we need to take sin seriously, you know. And, um, and I think that's sort of the idea with this. Maybe that happened in, in Corinth. It's never happened here. I hope it never does. But I'll tell you this. I do know people who are weak spiritually. People who are sick spiritually. People who are, in a sense, dying spiritually because they are not giving worth to the body of Christ. Because the cross isn't a focal point in their life the way that it should be. And that that breaks my heart as a pastor to see that, to see people go through that. So the point is, is when we're giving worth, we're taking it seriously. I'll never forget this. This made such an imprint on my heart. I was teaching once several years ago up in the mountains at a junior high camp. And I was given the final message of the retreat and, and, um, and we were going to partake of communion and the communion elements were passed out and the band was you know, leading worship. And right down in the second row was this little seventh grader. And this little kid was like sobbing uncontrollably during the communion time. He's just weeping. And so, you know, I... I, I looking at him like man something's wrong with this kid so I went down I put my arm around him I'm like hey buddy you know what's wrong how you doing he goes nothing's wrong he says I just can't believe it that Jesus died for my sin I'll be honest with you my first thought because I'm a wicked person (laughs) I'm I'm a fallen human being my first thought was you're in seventh grade. What have you done? You know, that was my first thought, to be honest with you. And then my second thought was, gosh, my heart should be like that. 
My heart should be like that. I mean, he's a seven. He's like so. I mean, talk about talk about taking worth, giving worth to the body of Christ. That this little kid was like, I can't believe it. Jesus has died for my sin. What a heavy thing to think about. That has always left this incredible imprint upon my heart. So we look back at the cross during communion to remember what Jesus did for us. We look forward to the fact that he's coming back, that we're going to be sharing with him in this ceremony again. And we look within at our hearts to make sure our hearts are right, that there is no hidden sin. It's a time for us to say, Lord, search me like David did. Search me, God, and let's see if there's any wicked way in me. So the fourth thing we do is we look up. You see, as I mentioned, Jesus didn't just die on the cross, but he rose again. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And this is what the writer in the book of Hebrews tells us about Jesus, that Jesus is in heaven now and he is our high priest. He's there at the right hand of the Father. And he's this high priest who can sympathize with us. Like, let me read to you what, the way um, the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. He says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore... Come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Communion isn't just a time where we look within because we can look within and get really, really discouraged because we're all, as I tell you all the time, we're all broken people who are still in the process of being transformed by a loving redeemer. None of us in this room have, not, have arrived yet. We haven't arrived. So we can look within, self-introspection can it, you know, be very damaging if you don't also look up and realize that as you look up that you have a high priest and he has gone before you and he loves you and he went to the cross for you and he says, hey, I want you to come boldly. The door is open because when Jesus died on the cross, there was that veil in the temple that stood as a wall, a barrier that only the high priest one day of the year could enter in through that veil into the holy of holies. And so for You know, a couple thousand years, it stood as a barrier. Keep out. But on the day that Jesus died on the cross and he declared from the cross, it is finished. God reached down and ripped that veil. It's basically saying, hey, it's open house now. You can come. You're welcome in my presence as you come through the work of my son. And here's what I want to make very, very clear. Some have wrongly thought on the basis of this passage, and especially the part where it talks about not eating in an unworthy manner. Some people read that and they feel like they're unworthy to partake of communion if they're struggling with a certain sin or they're wrestling with a particular temptation. But you know, that, that reasoning would be equivalent to a, a doctor saying to a sick person, get well, and then come see me. 
You know, it would be equivalent to a loan officer saying to a poor person, you need a loan, get some money and then come back and see me. Or it would be equivalent to a cook saying to somebody who was hungry and starving, you know, gain some weight and then I'll give you some food. No, that's not what the Lord does. The Lord's table is the very place for those who are struggling with sin or wrestling with temptation. But, but here's the key. Those who are struggling is different from those who are in rebellion. You know, we all struggle. We all have our issues. But the person who's just like, I, I don't care anymore. I'm just going to do this. I know it's wrong. I'm just going to do this. That's not struggling. That's the person who's just you know, taking a deep dive into saying, I just want to do what I want. But we all struggle with things. We all, you know, wrestle with temptation. And it's as we come to the table, we're basically saying, Lord, I'm, I'm admitting here I'm struggling. I'm admitting that I don't have all together. I'm admitting that I desperately need you in my life. And as I eat of the body and I drink of your blood, I'm just so thankful that there is forgiveness and there is grace. And I'm celebrating, Lord, what you've done for me. I'm, I'm, I'm tonight, you know, I, I'm realizing that your victory on the cross and, and, and your resurrection is my victory. And I want to walk in that. And, and, and as we're partaking of communion, it's like that's what we're, we're, we're saying. It's like I'm encompassing all of that. That, Lord, once again, I know that my only hope is in you and I need you. And so it's this, this heart that says, I want to come boldly. Not tentatively, but I want to come boldly. It's like, Lord, I realized I need you. So we look back, we look forward, we look within, we look help, we, we, we look up for help. And number five, we look around. Verse 33. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. When we partake of the Lord's table, when we partake of communion, it's great for us. And I want to encourage you to do this tonight, to look around. Because you see, his body, as we partake of the bread tonight, this little wafer, the Lord's body was given it was broken, it says here in 1 Corinthians 11. It was given for us. It was broken for us to make us a body, the bride of Christ, to make us a family. See, the church is not an organization. It's an organism. It's a living organism. We are all a part of the body of Christ. We belong together. And we need to realize that there's unity at the cross. And in this context that Paul is writing to and the problem that was going on, the rich needed to not look down on their poor brothers and sisters. And the poor brothers and sisters needed to not disdain those who were rich. They needed to all follow the example of Jesus preferring one another above ourselves. That's what Jesus did valuing one another in the Lord. I love what Paul says, wait for one another. Prefer one another. And, he, and I love this advice. And again, 
little tip for the single bros here. He says, don't show up starving. If you're going to the potluck, and, and, you, you know, and maybe, you know, you never know how much food's going to be there at a, at a potluck. So eat first. You know, eat a little bit so you're not starving, so you don't feel like you just have to dive in is kind of the idea. Um, so we look back, we look forward, we look within, we look up, we look around, and number six, we look out. You see, here's the thing, guys. It's great that all of us here are saved. It's awesome that all of our lives have been touched by the love and power of Jesus Christ. I'm assuming everybody here tonight is a believer because um, it's Wednesday night and you're at church, all right? So I'm assuming that, okay? All of our lives, we've been touched by the love of Jesus Christ. But here's the deal. There are people outside these walls. There are people outside these doors. This city, this county, this state, our nation is full of tons and tons, hundreds of thousands of people right now who don't know Jesus. And if they died today, they would spend eternity in hell separated from God who loves them so much. So we also need to look out. Look at verse 26 again. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That word proclaim means to declare or to preach. And the idea is this. Listen to me, friends. We have a message to share with the world around us, that there is hope in Jesus. Because of his death and his resurrection, and our mandate until he comes is to declare that hope. It's like my friend Ben Corson says, that we are to be hope generators, you know, for the world around us. Our world needs hope, and the hope is in Jesus. And so communion, as we partake of it tonight, should also remind us of our mission. And our mission is to spread the good news. You see, you have been saved by Jesus, not just so you can go to heaven, but you've been saved by it for a purpose. And that purpose is to declare the work of Jesus. We do that through our lives and we do that with our words. And so tonight, as we wrap up our time, we're going to celebrate communion. The band's going to come back out and we are going to... um, basically do what we've been talking about tonight. As we begin to just worship the Lord, we want to we wanna look back. We want to remember what Jesus did for us. And we want to look forward in re- remembrance of what's coming and where we're going. And, but we also need to look within. We need to do that self-examination and, 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 and just make sure, hey, is there any rebellion going on in my life? Is there you know, any, any sin that, that I've you know, just kind of been ignoring? I need to deal with that tonight. I need to realize that Jesus paid the price for that tonight and that doesn't belong in my life. I need to realize if I've been struggling that that I'm open and honest with the Lord in that. So we look within and then we look up 
And we realize that, that Jesus, he's, he's there and he made this way. He's at the Father and he's our high priest. And he says, because he's opened the door for us to come boldly. And then let's look around and realize that we are a part of this beautiful thing called the body of Christ. Now, one pastor I know, he, he calls the church a great big dysfunctional family. But then he says, but it's the best dysfunctional family around. And there's truth to that, because we don't have it all together. And we look around and we realize that. We realize the grace that Jesus has shown to us. And we're like, you know, I, I need this, I need to, you know, that brother over there has been bothering me. I'm not pointing at anybody over here, okay? So, <laughs> not pointing at you, Joe. Um, but, uh, you know, that the brother over here has been bothered, you know, that we, 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 it's like, why is that? I need, I need to show him grace. Lord, forgive me. You know, just looking around, being real with each other, and then remembering to look out. As we go out of here, realize, hey, we have a mission and a mandate to bring the good news of what Jesus did on the cross to a world that desperately needs him. In communion tonight, guys, we remember this, that, that we are connected first to Jesus, we are connected secondly to one another, and we are all connected to a mission, the mission that he's called us to. So let's pray together. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for the work of the cross. We thank you, Lord, for what you did in paving the way and making a way for sinners to be saved, for broken people to be transformed. And tonight, Lord, we want to celebrate your work. We want to celebrate you. We want to celebrate tonight forgiveness and redemption. And we want to celebrate the reality that we are a body of people, the body of Christ. Lord, we want to celebrate that all tonight as we worship you, as we partake of communion together. With our head bowed and our eyes closed, this is what we're going to do tonight. I'm going to ask guys in the back to bring the, the lights down a bit and Up in the front on both sides of the stage, we have some communion elements. And we're going to sing three or so songs right now. And and here's what I want you to do. As you feel ready in your heart, as you're just thinking about, you know, working through these things in your heart, when you feel ready, you can get up and make your way up to the table. And if you want to go off, you know, and front here and kneel and just have a quiet time with the Lord, you can do that. Feel free to do that. If you want to just get a, you know, go off somewhere, it's fine. Let's just take this time to worship the Lord and then as you feel led that you can just make your way up and you can just partake of these communion elements. The cracker part is on the top. When you pull open the thing and the the wafer and, and, and let's just rejoice. Let's just celebrate and let's just bring our hearts before the Lord as we consider what these six things we've talked about tonight and what it relates to and how it relates to what we're gonna do right now. So let's do that.